Welcome to Clearway Capital Solutions' new podcast series. I'm Dennis Mathanius from Clearway Capital Solutions, and I'm joined by Ben Deere, CEO and founder of Osmosis Investment Management, a sustainable alpha specialist manager to answer 10 plus questions about osmosis. As some of you might know, Clearway Capital Solutions works very closely with Osmosis in helping them to grow and maintain their business in Australia and New Zealand. Ben, very briefly, tell us about the history of Osmosis and what it does. Thank you, Dennis. So Osmosis uh, was established back in 2008-9. We are a sustainable, uh, systematic uh, equity manager um, with a particular focus uh, on the E of ESG. Um, The premise uh, of what we do and and why we established the firm was to uh, deliver portfolios where we don't only mitigate uh, environmental risk, but target environmental opportunity, but we also, and very importantly, target better risk-adjusted returns. What is the market opportunity Osmosis is hoping to take advantage of? Well, the opportunity uh, is the same as it was when we set up the firm. Um, We believed that the world uh, was uh, needed to transition uh, to a uh, more sustainable paradigm, and that the capital markets had an important uh, pivotal role to play in that transition. Uh, what we saw when we launched the firm, and indeed for many years afterwards, is that the investor community hadn't woken up to either the, the risks or the opportunities. Uh, and as time has gone on, clearly, um, as you in Australia uh, are well versed now with uh, the chaotic weather events that you're experiencing annually um, is that time is running out and there is a compounding issue with regards to carbon uh, in the atmosphere, uh, the amount of water that we're consuming and the amount of waste that we're polluting into our oceans and rivers and landfills. And as time marches on, the need to do more, more quickly, Uh, becomes of more paramount importance. So the opportunity is is twofold. Um, Well, threefold. One, if we don't do anything, well, you know, the future's not bright. For our generation, never mind the future generations, we're already feeling the impacts today. So tomorrow's impacts are just unfathomable and nothing that we would want to bless our uh, children with. Um, but importantly, as investors, uh, you know, we are seeking to generate better risk-adjusted returns for our clients. And as corporates, governments, societies are waking up to the risks and opportunities, there is a wealth of uh, opportunity for investors to capitalise on this. And when we set the firm up, um, one of the things we did before we launched is obviously we did a, a thorough analysis of products available on the market. And what we, what we saw is kind of almost what we see with a lot of products still today, um, which is they're designed in a way maybe to make investors feel pretty good about what they're doing with their money. Um, but there's not so much focus on managing the risk that's poured into the portfolios in order to be able to achieve that. Um, and so what we launched, and when we launched the firm, a particular focus for us 
was on managing that active risk board into portfolios um, because it was important not just to manage the risk, but to generate the return because we firmly believed that unless you could deliver excess return to clients, you wouldn't be able to shift the capital in the scale and size that is required to undertake this massive transformation that we require. So the opportunity is as big as it ever has been. Uh, the time in order to act is slightly shorter. Are there any other key points of difference between osmosis and other sustainable managers? Um, what is the process and perhaps outline what is resource efficiency? Sure. So, well, I'll start with the end of that. Mm. So the, uh, the, the the investment thesis of Osmosis um, really came about, um, there's multiple investment solutions across the sustainable spectrum. We, we all know that now. Um, but when we first launched the firm, we considered there's pretty much a barbell approach that's required in order to undertake uh, the transformation. Um, and one side of that barbell is one I think we all know quite well now, which is uh, clean tech and green solution-based companies that are, uh, that are innovating the ideas uh, for tomorrow. Um, that are helping accelerate the transition. And, uh, you know, Tesla is a good example of a company that's held in a lot of those green portfolios. Um, they tend to be mid-cap in size um, and reasonably volatile, as we've seen just over the last six months. Uh, but the other side of the barbell is the largest companies in the world who are consuming the most natural resource, who create the most economic value who are utilizing some of the technologies that these companies uh, on the other side of the barbell are developing. Um, and if they're not utilizing those, they're now using their own R&D budgets and have been for some time to develop their own proprietary technologies in order to make themselves more efficient. And I think this really started coming to the fore at the kind of at the mid part of the last commodity super cycle, where management teams of companies around the world, of large corporates, um, not, nothing to do with sustainability, were just recognizing, not that insightfully, to be honest, uh, that rising costs of inputs affects your margin. And if you could find a way of becoming more efficient, then perhaps you might have broader margins and be able to weather uh, possibly uh, inflationary as well as deflationary environments better than your uh, same sector peers. And that was kind of fascinating for us to kind of consider that, you know, sustainability wasn't about doing the right thing. It was about managing your balance sheet. So the investment thesis that we came up with was kind of, let's not look at just the environmental risk of climate change. Uh, but let's look at the economic opportunity. So the thesis is simple. Um, using environmental data, um, which is in itself it is still unstructured, there are no uh, standards uh, for disclosure, which again is an opportunity for the firm. But using environmental data, um, could we measure the relative efficiency of companies across the whole economy on a sector relative basis? And if we could identify those companies who are managing to create more economic value, but using less natural resource, and we determine that by the amount of energy they use, uh, the amount of water that they consume, and the amount of waste that they create, if you could identify those companies, could you prove out that that was possibly a proxy for good quality management uh, that was yet to be priced by the market? And that's resource efficiency. Those companies that are monetizing sustainability to the balance sheet 
And what we've been able to evidence since inception is that those companies have consistently delivered uh, better returns to investors um, than their uh, same sector inefficient peers. Um, the, the first part of your question is, is, is what separates us, I guess, or why are we, we different? Um, it's, it's a good question. Um, and there's a lot of people doing a lot of really interesting things in the market. But um, this is first and foremost all we do. Um, you know, there's a team of 30 people now that we've built up over the last 13 years uh, who are specialists in collecting environmental data um, and then cleaning it and standardizing it to these economic frameworks in order to create this unique factor, our resource efficiency factor, that we use um, to deliver uh, within all our portfolios the main source of return. And that is pretty unique. Um, I think where we we see a lot of potential for issues moving forward is competitors with a bigger balance sheets, bigger marketing budgets. Um, as again, I think your audience, Dennis, will be well aware of uh, the term ESG. Sure. Um, have perhaps jumped on the the ESG marketing bandwagon maybe not giving quite as much consideration into the interaction effect between those three individual pillars of environmental, social, and governance. Uh, and there's been a, a, a drift towards what I call finding utopia inside a, a portfolio, which means you get a lot of everything, but nothing in particular in focus. So some products now have over 100 underlying ESG factors, and it's very hard to determine which one is working when. And the latest uh, development that we've seen as a consequence of, of, uh, of uh, Glasgow and the net zero uh, alliance that's been formed is a proliferation of product trying to uh, uh, tally into uh, investor demand of uh, products that are called Paris aligned, uh, which are seeking to heat, uh, uh, you, you, which are seeking to to control the temperature <coughs> of your portfolio within Paris guidelines um, to below uh, two degrees by 2030. And unfortunately, again, they're not specialists designing this. Actually, the the principles for Paris were, I think, concocted by a mixture of. Uh, of politicians, regulators, and academics. And so the outcomes are, again, on paper, they look fantastic. You know, you clearly set goals and aims, and, and that's fantastic and should be commended. But the unintended bets that are brought into these portfolios <coughs> have seen very recently, um, obviously, underperformance, because fundamentally what you end up with is a, kind of a long tech and a short oil position. And, and again, I'm not saying that that's bad, and they are raising billions and billions of dollars worth of assets, um, which is great because all sustainability is better than no sustainability. But unfortunately, going back to that point I raised earlier, if we can't, as asset managers, deliver better risk-adjusted returns, do we fear losing investors um, over the medium term who become dissatisfied to underperformance relative to a benchmark? It's a bigger ethical and philosophical question, you know, doing the right thing, making better risk-adjusted returns. But our argument is that you should be able to do both. And we've been able to evidence that now for 
uh, some quite some period of time. Um, whereas some of our peers, um, unfortunately, during the recent market sell-offs, uh, are seeing some of those unintended bets come through. So just to conclude, you know, why are we different? I, I would argue it's because we're specialists. We understand the data and it's all we do. Ben, how important is culture at Osmosis? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, they say is culture starts from the top, which is always pretty worrying. Um, my, my background very quickly is I was an entrepreneur, but it's an awful word, but I had a tech business before I set up Osmosis. Um, and uh, so I guess I came from, I haven't had an atypical uh, fund management background. I just believe that uh, uh, the, the people should, you know, within any office environment, have an equal voice, uh, be able to show that they've got ability to deliver uh, and to be guided where they can't, uh, and for it to be fun, um, but also important for it to have meaning. Uh, and meaning, again, is driven in two ways. One, you know, when you're starting to run billions of dollars of assets, which we now are, um, we're having an impact. You know, our engagement programs that we're running in, uh, around the, the firm with companies is, uh, is, you know, exciting for the employees. And a lot of them are much, much younger than me, I hasten to add. Uh, and they really care about these issues as well they should. Um, but also the opportunities, you know, to have a financially rewarding career as well is incredibly important. So, so fostering that culture, um, I, I like to think from the top, uh, means that, you know, we, we, we work very hard. We have to, you know, we operate uh, a, a very fast growing business now, but, you know, on a budget that, you know, maybe a thousandth the size of, uh, of a BlackRock or another large organization. Um, and, and so we have to, we have to be nimble. We have to be smart. Um, and we have to uh, foster that culture within the firm um, the, the hard work brings results. And I think we've managed so far to do that. Is so, it yeah, it's, culture is incredibly important. And we hope that helps us retain staff um, because what we've seen is with inflation, actually, it's quite interesting. Just recently, you know, wage inflation is a, is a considerable issue for more boutique managers um, when you have, uh, you know, the large organisations uh, doubling and sometimes trebling uh, juniors pay in order to you know make up for the hard work that they've put in over the the COVID period. You know you can't match that as a small firm. So there has to be more to it than just the money. And and I think you know we've hopefully developed the culture um, that has enabled people to know that they could. We want them to stay for 20, 30 years. You know so that's how we we set about managing the culture of the business. Is it becoming more difficult to deliver alpha? Um, well, look, we're going through a crisis to crisis. Um, that's what it feels like. And I think we probably all feel it. Um, you know, we've gone from COVID, you know, to the issues in Europe, um, which seem to be escalating on, on a pretty much daily basis. And, and I know, as I mentioned earlier, you guys have, you know, you've got your, your floods. And, you know, when I was last over there, I think it was the fires. Um, but, you know, osmosis, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a bad time to, 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 to try to, push forward your, your alpha in some respects. You know, I try to be, we've got to be humble about these things while people are struggling in different parts of the world. Um, but the, the, the environment that we found out, that we now find ourselves in, i.e. an inflationary environment, um, it is very beneficial for uh, our products and our, and our investment thesis. Again, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, our, our resource efficiency factors identifying companies that are 
producing more value, but utilizing less resource. Um, one of the metrics is waste. So if you're consuming uh, less commodities, clearly you're creating less waste. And so if you're more efficient, you're going to get a higher weighting within our portfolios. Um, so, so with inflationary pressures really kicking in now, I mean, the, the latest numbers, CPI numbers came out of the US today and they're close to 8%. I mean, real inflation, I think we all know, is, is a lot higher than that. Um, and, and the same in Europe, you know, and, and in the UK. Um, so as companies start to grapple um, with the with the, the free money tap being turned off, so tapering starting to kick in, uh, the ECB just today announced that you know, their asset purchase program is slowly going to be tapered. Um, and with interest rate rises, dependent upon um, the, uh, obviously clearly what happens over the next weeks and months, um, with, with liquidity draining from the market, um, and interest rates rising, um, you know, that cost of capital is uh, going to start really hitting those companies who are over leveraged. Um, and again, we tend to be very underweight, uh, over levered companies in our portfolios. Um, and as a consequence of which, um, you know, our portfolios, all our portfolios since inception um, are above their benchmark. And, and over the recent period of the last six months, um, you know, the, the higher active share portfolios are up between two and I think four or five percent to their benchmark. But in particular, reference to the Australian product that we run uh, domestically, uh, the uh, what we call our Corex Australia product, um, which is a very tight tracking error product tilted towards resource efficiency. Um, since inception, just over a year ago, um, it's running with an information ratio now of over two. As those companies that you know we overweight. Uh, we believe they're just better placed to deal with the issues, not just of today, but better prepared for the issues that are around the corner. Uh, and the, our investors are, are getting rewarded uh, for placing their capital with us um, over the last, well, actually over the last nine years, but you know, certainly over the last uh, 12 months, it's uh, been very beneficial for us. And we see the opportunity just getting stronger um, as we move. You know, there's, there's, there's multiple pressures that are compounding. So, you know, you have environmental regulation, you have carbon tax, you have high oil price, you have interest rates, you have inflation. Um, we, we believe our positions, are, uh, our portfolios are, are positioned incredibly well um, to, to weather that storm and to, to consistently, we hope, consistently deliver the outperformance that we've been showing historically. What can the Osmosis core strategy contribute to a multi-asset portfolio? Well, it's a, that's a very good question, and it normally takes us hours to answer that. But, uh, you know, there, there's a few key things, I think, that maybe just to pull out. Um, the, 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 the first is, is, is clearly, you know, are you looking to you know, target uh, a, a low carbon or an environmental exposure within your portfolio? Um, and the answer now to that question, I'm grateful for this, tends to be with most people, most investors, the answer is yes. We've done it, or yes, we're looking at it. There's very few who are saying no. So, if you're looking to do that, you know, what should be your objectives? Is it just to reduce the carbon, or is it to try and enhance the return? So, firstly, you know, clearly we fit into that group of investors who want to manage risk uh, and, and target uh, both this complementary environmental reduction and better risk adjusted return. Uh, secondly, and I think quite importantly, is our return stream um, is uncorrelated, um, which, uh, you know, we run a couple of hedge funds um, where they're beta zero, 
Um, and what we can evidence is all the return comes through the idiosyncratic part of the risk models, and that's coming through our tilts, uh, we believe, to, to resource efficiency. So, you know, having a, a source of uh, uncorrelated return um, coming into your portfolios at a time where, you know, when you <laughs> over, I, and I, I shouldn't laugh, and you might have to edit that bit out, <laughs> but, you know, when you see the markets dropping, you know, quite significantly. So, you know, you, we have the taper tantrum, um, you have the, uh, the COVID crisis, you have the uh, Ukraine uh, invasion by Russia. Um, you know, when you see that, a lot of things start to correlate to one. You know, risk comes off the table, everything drops. Um, what we've been able to evidence is that we've got fantastic downside capture ratios through all these scenarios. So we, we knew that from the back test back to 2005, that the portfolios weathered these significant events very well. But, you know, you could say you're lucky, but again, probably the wrong word because these are awful events. But when these awful events happen, we've been able to capture, you know, protect that downside for investors. Whilst, you know, when the markets rally, providing it's not a liquidity-based junk rally, and we've seen a few of those over the last 12 months um, with the Fed, you know, constantly throwing free money into the market. Um, and so long as it's not that and it's got a quality style bias to it, um, then the portfolios also deliver on the upside as well. So, you know, for an investor that's grappling with these challenges and these commitments that people are making of, of uh, we want to take our book, you know, to net zero. Often the first part of the book they go to is the equity book. It tends to be the easiest one to decarbonize. You know, being able to bring in a source of return that's very differentiated and pretty consistent. You know, the core equity program hasn't had a down year since inception um, to the benchmark. Um, and, and to be able to bring that in and then be able to say, and we've managed to reduce our carbon and our water and our waste by about 60% across those three individual factors, uh, I think is a, you know, I would argue, and <laughs> we often do, um, I would argue that's a pretty complementary thing to bring into a multi-asset portfolio. What are the biggest risks to the portfolios? Uh, what typically keeps you up at night? Oh, there's a lot of things that keep me up at night, Dennis. Um, <laughs> the uh, the one thing that I've really I've struggled with, and I've struggled with it, I guess, because the portfolios struggle with it, and we have a I have a symbiotic relationship with the nabs of our portfolios. So, you know, when we see uh, a denial by central bankers of some of the potential damage that they're doing to their economies through overstimulating, you know, taking the programs too far too long and seeing junk rally, I know that's not going to be good for our portfolios. And it does keep me awake at night. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. You know, I'm checking the, the, the closes and the opens and you don't get much sleep during those environments and you have no control over it. So, you know, you do sometimes think that, you know, your team have been working incredibly hard for many, many years to prove this thesis out. Uh, and, you know, with a signing of a pen or the pressing of a keyboard, uh, you know, Powell or Lagarde or the Central Bank of Japan, you know, with one swift action can take out any, you know, fundamental pricing from the market. And that's, you know, we've been going through that journey in the kind of post-COVID reflation. And, and that does keep you awake at night. You know, will the portfolios hold? Will they weather this? You know, we, nobody wants to own junk. Uh, and, and that does keep me um, 
awake at night. Uh, lots of other things keep me awake at night. You know, we, 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 we've gone through a 13 year journey to get to where we are today. Um, and our, you know, the larger competitors uh, have, as I've mentioned again, you know, they have very big balance sheets. They throw a lot of money at this. They have direct access and they have distribution all over the world, you know. And so it, it does keep me awake at night or did a lot, you know, when we went into COVID lockdown and sales teams couldn't travel. And luckily, we've got you good guys around at Clearway who have been representing us fantastically in Australia. So I wasn't being kept awake by my Australians, but uh, certainly the US and the uh, European markets were a challenge. But, you know, over COVID, we started COVID with 1.2 billion in assets and we ended COVID. If you can say COVID has ended, that's probably debatable, uh, with about 2.5 billion, uh, 2.6. So we've done fantastically well to be able to achieve that while sitting in our bedrooms and studies at, at home. Um, apart from that, um, it's just my old age and aching bones that keep me awake at night. <laughs> How are social and governance factors integrated into the process? Yeah, I, so I started off by saying that, you know, we, we disaggregated those three factors at the beginning. You know, this utopian approach to portfolio management, although we don't disagree and we wish everyone well in that journey, you know, the, there's no reason for those three factors really be, to be together. And the interaction effect between the three is very debatable. Um, so obviously we focus as a firm on the E, the environment is of, of utmost concern and time is not on our side, um, but we don't ignore the S and the G. Um, you know, we do at a very high level incorporate uh, UN Global Compact Screens, which takes out the kind of the nasty companies that nobody really should own. Um, and we obviously exclude tobacco from all portfolios because it would be, uh, it would uh, is it an oxymoron? I'm not entirely sure if that's the right word, but it would, it would be uh, very challenging to explain to an investor that you are uh, investing in the most efficient producer of cancer. Um, and obviously our thesis being around efficiency, I would find that very challenging. But with other social and governance factors, because we found this source of uncorrelated return, uh, in resource efficiency, we don't believe as a firm that we should uh, put our values onto our investors because everyone and every investment group is different and they have their own values and their own thoughts and their own principles. So we work with them to implement their own social and governance screens into our portfolios and we show them what the impact of those would be from a risk and performance perspective back to 2005. So they can see what those decisions mean for them financially before committing to work with osmosis. And, and I just think that's the better way to do it. You know, S&G is subjective. It is horses for courses. It's all great stuff. You know, we're totally behind it, but we don't think that we should be the architects of, the, of, of a one-firm view that we express to all our portfolios on behalf of our investors, we would rather our investors tell us what their view is and incorporate their views into our portfolios. Does Osmosis believe ESG can add value or and or, or reduce risk? Um, well, I, I certainly know that the E of ESG can add value and, and manage and and. and and be complementary from obviously clearly a risk perspective. You know that's what all we do. Bringing in the other two factors, it's debatable. You know you would argue academia is the place to go to review that, and the jury. I would argue that the jury is out um, on that. Still, not saying that it can't reduce risk. Whether or not it enhances return or not, I don't know. There are some natural biases that come out of. ESG style portfolios, 
um, with you know kind of low vol exposure, quality bias, which which might assist during certain kind of cyclical timings of the market. Um, but is, is it yet a consistent form of value? I would put it back to you and say yes, depending on whose ESG it is. And that's the challenge for investors to find the right firm. Now, whether or not they're doing environmental investing with osmosis or want more broad ESG approach, they need to find the firms that don't just buy data from third parties and put an overlay on a product and say, look, we've rebadged this as ESG. You need to work with the firm that has invested the time, the money, the education, the knowledge into really understanding what the impacts are of bringing in uh, the S and the G into portfolios and whether or not those that additional risk that is bought in, because after all, you know, when you're bringing in anything new to a portfolio, you are bringing in additional risk. Is that risk being rewarded? And if, if you don't care about the reward, then ESG all day long. But if you also care about your unit holders or if you're a private investor and you do care about your retirement, um, you know, fiduciary responsibility um, is almost never mentioned in ESG land. You know, it's like sometimes I just think it's ESG at any price. Um, we at Osmosis firmly believe that, you know, the, the, we're asset managers and fiduciary responsibility is about, you know, managing risk and delivering return uh, and bringing in ESG has to be complementary to that. It, it can't negatively impact it. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm a big advocate of the whole movement. Um, I'm a big supporter, but I just believe it should be done well. Uh, and it should be explainable. And if you can't explain why you've bought something into your portfolio, why a portfolio, why a stock within a portfolio has a certain weight as a consequence of an ESG uh, impact, uh, then clearly you shouldn't be possibly working with that manager. Um, Osmosis has visited Australia many times or several times. What is it like? What is it you like about Australia? <laughs> um, well, normally when I come to Australia, I think we come twice a year for you know six or seven years now. Um, I'm always so jet lagged, to be honest, that uh, I never really get to enjoy it as much as I would want. But um, I, you know, <laughs> we always come at Christmas. So I, I guess I've got to say the first thing, and trying not to be insensitive about obviously what's happening or just recently happened uh, in Australia. It, uh, the first and foremost, obviously, the, the climate is very uh, attractive to Brits in the winter. Um, but more importantly, I think the culture, the people, um, and I know that probably sounds a, a little bit cheesy, um, but, you know, it's got a, the people that we speak to and, and deal with have a, a very can-do kind of attitude and, and, and a kind of great fun as well. Um, and that's always a pleasure to deal with. You know, we, we're in a very serious business, but rather like the culture at the firm, you know, it's got to be a fun place to work. And it's also got to be a fun place to interact with your, your counterparts, be they, you know, your, 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 your fund uh, pr platform providers or, or your investors. Um, so culturally, I, I, I do love Australia. I, I love the wine. There's no doubt about that. I think the wine's pretty good. Uh, and then and finally, um, I, I've got family. You know, I've got Australian family. Um, so I've got sisters uh, who, who live there outside of Melbourne and I've got uh, nieces and nephews. So it's always uh, great to uh, to be able to to see them. So, you know, all, all in all, you know, if it wasn't quite so hot in the summer, 
um, I'd relocate. <laughs> but uh, it does get a bit too hot for uh, this uh, uh, pale and pasty 51-year-old man from uh, from London. But uh, no, I, uh, people, the culture, the food, the wine, and visiting family. I think that about sums it up. Uh, ben, um, what is Osmosis's uh, medium-term outlook for the asset class? Oh, gosh, well... So the, the long-term or the medium-term outlook for equities, you know, had you asked me that, well, it would have changed had you asked me that three months ago to now, to be honest. So I think we've, I mean, anyone who's involved in the industry can, you know, go in and look up, you know, historical long-term expected return from equities and, and then see, you know, the equity performance over the last three years. I think, can that continue? And clearly the answer is, is not. Um, so for equities as a broad, you know, uh, as a broad asset class um, for investors over the next three to five years, um, I, I, I mean, personally, um, I, I would suggest that returns will not be as good in the medium term future as they have been in the past. Um, and you're unlikely to hear that from uh, brokers because clearly everyone has something to sell. So the really important thing is, you know, if you are invested into equities, which clearly a portion of your portfolio has to be, um, you know, what equities are you buying um, and how are you positioning and targeting? You know, there, there are styles that, that can become more attractive. Um, you know, for example, value is having a, 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 a notable rotation at the moment in, in the value. Um, uh, and value, you know, was argued had died. Um, pretty much like low vol as well, you know, so and low vol seems to be having a, a resurgence because the environment is changing that is obviously complementary to those styles. But just consider the macro picture, you know, the macro picture is, you know, one of uh, more debt, higher interest rates, higher commodity prices, you know, it, it sounds very bleak and, you know, I was told today I needed to be more of an optimist, but it's quite challenging when you look at the macro picture to see the pearls of, uh, of reasons why to be optimistic in the short to medium term, at least. But as an investor and in seeking returns and trying to protect your capital, that clearly one of the biggest themes and trends to invest in, you know, is the fact that, you know, we have to adopt to the, the new paradigm of a warming planet. And those will create opportunities for investors to navigate through what, could potentially be a challenging time for equities. And investors clearly are very smart and they know that. Um, and that's why, you know, particularly at Osmosis, and I'm sure at firms all over the world, there's a renewed interest and resurgence and flows have been very high into environmental and uh, ESG-themed funds. And, and long may that continue. Uh, but hopefully with uh, with investors being able to identify the right managers to do that with, because uh, as we all know, you choose the wrong manager, uh, uh, you do it in haste and you uh, repent in leisure. Thank you, Ben. Well, it's a pleasure, Dennis. I've, uh, I've enjoyed it. I hope I was coherent and uh, made sense and wasn't uh, either too optimistic or too negative or too rude or too offensive. So uh, thank you. Thank you.